Testing. Testing. Are we recording? Okay, I think we are. Let's talk about some things that matter. Let's take some time to drift and hum. Hi friends and welcome to the Drift and Hum podcast. Episode number one, we've got a great show for you today, and we've got a few stories that matter, maybe a poem perhaps, and but most importantly, we have a great interview with Susie Latchford-Colker from very cold today, Hilliard, Ontario, Canada. Susie is the founder and leader of Heal With Horses, and I think you're really going to love her story. So grab a cold drink or a hot drink and get comfortable and sit back and enjoy the podcast. Thanks, friends. to start today by going through something that I've been thinking about lately. Why does there seem to be so much stress and anger and divisiveness in our world? And to do this, I went back and started thinking about something, a model that I've always kind of enjoyed over the years, and that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I know a lot of scientists have said that there's no proof in Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs, but I've always found it interesting because it's a maturity model of sorts. And I'm a big believer in this idea of maturity models in that it allows us to see how we can progress in our thinking and in the goals that we're trying to meet. So just going back real fast, uh, for those of you that need a refresher on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Maslow was a psychologist back in the 40s who wrote a paper on the theory of human motivation. And the whole idea is that he says that there's a hierarchy of needs and that in order to meet these, you have to meet the lower needs. And then through meeting the lower needs, you can rise on the scale of the hierarchy. And his hierarchy, as he put it out, is that at the bottom, we have physiological needs and then once those are met then we have we can meet our safety needs and once those are met we can meet our love and belonging needs and once those are met then we can meet our esteem needs and once those are met we can be at the top of the pyramid for self-actualization so the if we go back to the bottom of the pyramid the physiological needs are just things like air and water and the safety needs are shelter and security. And as we climb the hierarchy, then we move into love and belonging needs where we need friendship and love and relationships. And then we move up to esteem where this is where we want to know that we're doing a good job and that people appreciate us and that we're reaching our goals. And then as we move up the hierarchy, then we move up to true the, the top of the pyramid, which is self-actualization, where we say we can actually reach our potential. So the reason why I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs when I'm watching and, and seeing the divisiveness that is in our world, in particular in the Western world today, and it just puzzles me because it seems to me that most of us in general have our physiological needs met. There's air and there's water. And as well, in general, we have our safety needs met. Most of us have nice places to live. We have law and order um, around us. We're not too worried about saber-toothed tigers attacking us on any given day. 
And as we go up the hierarchy, for sure, we most of us have love and belonging as well. We have uh, friends that love us. We have family that love us. And as we go up, there's a lot of people, and I know a lot of people that are in the the part of the maturity model that are in esteem and who are self-actualizing, that are actually reaching those potential. But even these same people um, have a lot of feelings right now of stress and anger. And so it just struck me, why is this? If the idea is that we go up the maturity model, and as we do, life should be getting better, If that's the case, then why is life seemingly not better for a lot of people who are clearly rising up through the maturity model? And it struck me that Dr. Maslow missed something in his theory of motivation, and that is that this word is appreciation. It struck me that as you go up the maturity model and as you go from having your needs met, the hierarchy of the lower order needs met, You have to appreciate the fact that they're met and you have to keep that appreciation with you as you climb the maturity model. And only then will you in fact take the gains and the benefits of working through the hierarchy of needs. So in other words, if you have air and you have water, then you have to appreciate that and continue to appreciate that as you move into your safety. And once you have a nice home and you have law and order in the place that you live, then you have to appreciate that. And if you keep that appreciation with you, then you move up into the higher order. And when you have love and relationships, and then you appreciate those and you keep that appreciation with you, then you can continue to move up the hierarchy of needs. And in fact, that will bring us to a point where we are happy and we recognize and appreciate all those things that we have. And if you want to get an idea of why this may in fact be the way to look at things, if you think about when you get advice from your grandmother or your grandparents when you feel like your life is at a stressful point and at the end of the day, the most fundamental advice somebody can give you is to just breathe. Just take a deep breath. Well, what are they really saying? What they're really saying is go back to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, back to the pyramid, and go to the very bottom and just take a deep breath and realize that you have fresh air and appreciate that and then start climbing the model again. So anyway, there's something to think about. Roadside warms to the morning sun all night cafe stretching young sweep the dust from your sleepy head leave like the dark from the dawn last night stands and one time lies
before we get to our amazing interview with Susie Latchford, I'd just like to tell you a story. A couple of weeks ago, I had some workout in Los Angeles, and uh, it was a pretty neat trip for me for a couple of reasons. The first was uh, just a lesson learned. I was on my flight uh, in Atlanta, to which was going to take me to Los Angeles, and a young couple came on uh, after I had already boarded, and they had this huge carry-on bag with them that they were calling a carry-on bag. It was this huge duffel bag probably the size of a bag that three scuba divers would use to put all their gear in. Clearly not a carry-on bag from anybody else that was looking on, but it was interesting uh, as everybody on the plane watched this young couple attempt to put the bag into the compartment uh, up uh, on top of their seats. And then at some point, uh, a very nice, kind flight attendant came over and said, I don't think that that bag is a carry-on bag. It seems too big. Uh, it was clearly evident by the fact that it was about twice the size of the opening in the compartment. But what was interesting was the young couple was adamant, completely anchored in the fact that it was a carry-on bag. And the young lady of the couple started citing websites and dimensions and so on and so forth. She had the science down of the carry-on bag science, I guess, uh, in the mathematics of it. Most of us really didn't know the math. We were just looking at the fact that it was twice as big as the opening for the compartment, which would lead most of us to think it was not a carry-on bag. Anyway, the flight attendant just kind of paused and said, okay, well, if you think it is, that's fine. And she left the young couple to their challenge of trying to fit it into the compartment, which it didn't. And eventually they had to concede the fact that uh, even though it was a carry-on bag from their perspective... It was not going to fit in the compartment and they checked the bag. Anyway, fast forward a few days after my work was done, I had a fantastic hike in the Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park. And what an incredible place. And if you get a chance, please visit it. And as part of that, I hiked to Alta Peak, which for me was uh, was a lot of fun, 11,200 feet. I actually had to use my micro spikes, which I bought the day before as uh, any chance to get a new piece of gear. I reached out and did that. Um, and apparently all my readings suggest that thin air starts at 7,000 feet. So I was quite pleased with myself that I was 5,000 feet into thin air, although I didn't break out my bottled oxygen. But what was interesting was that as I'm hiking, it takes a while for me to start enjoying nature. It takes a while for my brain to stop thinking about work and and the things that stress me and the things that create anxiety, the things I worry about that will probably never end up happening. But I have, as a part of my own emotional intelligence, I'm watching myself and listening to the way my mind works. And I notice it takes me around 30 minutes of hiking in nature before I start to really appreciate the, the, the woods and the hills and the mountains and start to leave the stresses of the world behind. So during this first 30 minutes, I was ruminating on the fact that travel seems to be very stressful for people and the fact that as because of my life and so much travel that I do for work, I notice a lot of people who end up having a lot of stress with travel. In fact, I've seen people have downright meltdowns, uh, yelling and screaming at flight attendants and, and people working the counters and so forth when things don't go their way. But what's interesting in my observations of all of this is that what I've noticed is that it's actually people that don't travel very often that in fact are the ones that are getting the most stressed. That is the million milers and the seasons travelers. Um, in fact, when these things go 
wrong, they tend to just sit down and pull out a book, open up their laptop, or go get a cup of coffee and just take a deep breath. And so that's interesting when you think about it in that the people that are traveling the most are in fact the people that get stressed the less. And the people that are traveling the least are the people that get stressed the most. And so there's something there. And I've decided that what it is, is that it's about setting expectations and it's about expectations. And so seasons travelers, we know that the odds of everything going right are very small. The sheer complexity of running an airline is incredible. And the mathematics of everything going right is almost, it's almost improbable. So as travelers who are there all the time living the life of the traveler, we understand that, look, if things go right, that's amazing. And the norm is for things to not go so right. So when they don't go well, we just say, okay, it's just one of those days. And we sit down and we grab a book and we open up our laptop. In fact, a lot of drift and hum, 193,000 words, my novel was written in airports because of canceled flights. So what's the moral of the story? Well, the moral of the story is just because you've got something that you think is a carry-on, if you've got too much baggage and it doesn't fit in the compartment you're trying to put it in, then you either need to check your bag or you need to get a smaller bag and not carry so much baggage around with you. That'll make your life a little easier. And the other moral of the story is when you're out there in the world, things happen. And if things happen really well and everything goes well, then just be amazed and be grateful. And if things don't go so well, just take a deep breath, pull out your laptop or your journal and do a little writing, write a story. People would love to read it. Here's a little poem from Drift and Hum that I couldn't help but reread a few times as I was hiking in the most amazing trees in all of the world in the sequoias. If you get a chance, friends, please take some time to drift and hum and go and see these trees. They're absolutely amazing. Sequoia, majestic tree standing proud and high, feet in the dirt and head in the sky. What have you felt over so many years? What was there more of, laughter or tears? What was it like over two millennial ago when you were a sapling with no plan but to grow? Into a beautiful sequoia, the largest of your kind, the gentlest of giants suspended in time. How many stories rest in each of your rings? What would this song be if suddenly you could sing? Would it be about the sun or how the wind blows? Or perhaps the feel of rain or a winter's soft snows? And what have you witnessed with the evolution of man and his insatiable desire to consume all the land? Do you look down upon him with confusion and dismay? Or do you pay no attention, simply living for the day? How lucky you are standing confident and tall, many years in front of you before you will fall. And as I lean up against you, I think how lucky I would be if in my next life I could come back as a tree. Sam, Somewhere on the Road.
On a little bit of a sad note, over the last couple weeks, we had to say goodbye to my uncle's chocolate lab, Nikki, aka the brown dog. She was an absolutely incredible dog, 12 and a half years old, and she was suffering with bone cancer, and so it was time for her to move on. Her life was incredible. She traveled North America in transport trucks. She traveled North America in private jets. Born in Capuscasing, Ontario, she was a trained athlete, a hunter, very, very good at what she did, and she hunted in Ontario and Manitoba. Toba and other places. And most importantly, though, she was an incredible friend and just a smart, loving dog, as most labs are. Many of us in the family got a chance to know her because as she got older, um, she would do her summers in Canada at the beautiful lakes of Halliburton around the Cobaconk area. And she would also spend some time in South Carolina to enjoy the sun during the winters. We miss her already, but she had an amazing life. And for all of those of you that have dogs, you know what I'm talking about. And all I can say is make sure you take some time to spend with your dogs. They're incredible. Get out into the woods, get them running, and enjoy nature with them. Well, hi, folks, and uh, here I am today, and I'm really excited about this uh, interview for our podcast, and I'm chatting today with Susie Latchford-Culker, who's in Hillier, Ontario, Canada, and Susie is the founder and leader of Heal With Horses. So, hey, Susie, how are you today? I'm awesome, and you? I'm doing really good, thanks. I have to ask before we get started, how cold is it there today? Well, we woke up to minus 26. But uh, with wind chill, it's more like minus 36, <laughs> minus 40, so a little burr. Well, that's what you get for being in Prince Edward County, right outside of Picton, Ontario, where your uh, Heal with Horses Therapeutic Center is. So I hope the wood stove uh, stays going strong for you. And listen, thank you so much for your time today. And I just want to ask you a few things about your the Heal with Horses Therapeutic Center. So, you know, just the first thing is, is what's uh, going on with Heal with Horses? Well, a few things, actually. We're we're pretty unique in that we, we offer services that are available to all ages. So any age from three to till the elderly, we can we can help with our services. And also we're unique because our special needs programs have um, riding involved, but we also have services that you do reflective work and emotional work with the horses that is um, all done from the ground. So there's not very many therapy or therapeutic horse farms out there that that can offer all those components. Very good. So for, for those of us that listening that really don't even know what human equine assisted learning is or even what equine therapy is, just take us from the fundamentals. What are we even talking about? Well, when I first started, I read a book called The Tao of Equus by Linda Kohanov. She's from Arizona and she developed sort of a method that was grounded in, you know, really revering the horse as a teacher and utilizing them and their natural abilities to to gauge us and everything around them simply because they're prey animals. So being a prey animal, they have to be aware of everything around them at all times. So in that case, they know what we're feeling before we do, and that's simply because they have that natural instinct. Because if they feel unsafe, they need 
in fear for their life, they need to run and get away. So they can sense our body language, our heart rate, if we're being congruent or not. And and so by reflecting all of those things back to us, they help us change our approach. They help us change how we're feeling in order for them to react to us in a in a way that that we want in a sense. So that's the non-mounted side. Now the special needs children's autism, ADD, anxiety and things like that is more kinetic. So we're taking children and and adults and bringing them to the farm in a very natural environment that's very relaxed. It's like Uncle Joe's farm. You know, it's not a five-star equestrian center. The horses are all living together as a herd, a herd of 21. It's all about doing this under the canopy of nature. So in this case, the case the kids uh, do ride because they they need that interaction and the the physical feeling of riding for them actually produces oxytocin and serotonin, which is what we're after. We're trying to cut cortisol down, the stress hormone. And so we do that by helping them build relationships with us and relationships with our horses and our other small social animals. And then you get communication, right? You get trust. You get the kids opening up. And, you know, we don't stick to the arena. We go out and about on trail and and we just treat them like everybody else, you know, and uh, and so do the horses. That sounds absolutely fantastic, and I love your point about just getting the, you know, in particular the young kids back with nature, and I know you have a lot uh, going on there other than just the horses. You've got, uh, you know, the true mm-hmm. far, a true farm experience, and uh, and I would argue that it is five-star. We would just need to redefine uh, what the, what <laughs> yeah. ha, ha, how you how you define five-star, but what you're doing there is so important and it really does matter. You know, so so with that, again, for all those of us that really don't understand, how do horses teach us? What is the, what, what is the science behind how we learn from horses? Mostly because it's all nonverbal. And, and most language is, but humans depend on, on ver- being verbal in order to be understood and get their point across. But the horses teach us another way to communicate. And they can help us go, well, let's just say my my job as a facilitator is to help people come out of their analytical thinking mind and go into their bodies. Because that's where horses are. They're present. They're in the moment constantly. They don't know how to live every, any other way. And so by being in their presence, they can teach us that as well, is stay present. Don't disassociate. When you do disassociate, I'm going to react this way and bring you back. So as soon as you're not paying attention to uh, what you're doing or your thoughts, the horse will react to you and bring you back instantly. And then by changing your approach, they they give you instant feedback. So as you're changing your approach, they're changing their reaction, and then that is ingraining in, in the person's body. So it's it's experiential. It's, it's learning by doing. It's just their, their true nature, and they don't lie. So we do activities like meet the herd, and, and we try to get people to start using their their intuition and and their instincts and pick up information about the horse and then and then talk about that. And we'll do this in a herd of, you know, 21 horses. 
And just being out amongst them and just watching them even is therapeutic. So it sounds absolutely fantastic, and and it must be. I'm, I know it's rewarding for the people that come and see you and spend time with you, but it must be rewarding for you as well, you know, as the leader and the, as the lead facilitator as well. And, you know, with that, I, I'm sure you get a lot of different types of families and individuals coming out to participate with Heal with Horses. Is there, are there, are there kind of two or three things that typically surprise families or individuals who come out who really don't know much about equine therapy? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's their their child's instant relaxation that they see that happens <laughs> and how much they can open up right away. And sometimes it's we, we have to tell the parents just to, to relax <laughs> a little bit and just let their child be who they are. Because we're not there to necessarily discipline the kids all the time. It, and make them do everything properly and and you really see the parents sometimes get caught up in well he should he or she should be mounting the horse properly and getting off properly and 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 you know here at heel with horses there is no proper way there's a safe way of course but we don't have to do everything perfect if the child wants to get off on the right side and slide down, then go for it. If they want to swing their leg around the front of the saddle, then go for it. There's no, like, we really disregard those those really tight, restrictive ways of, of, of doing things, and we find another way that works best for them so that there's a good experience being and memories being made, you know? Amazing, and, and I, I know from chatting with you, you know, in the past, uh, it's an incredible amount of work. It's 24-7 uh, for you and your family uh, to to maintain your farm there. And, and I know that, uh, and I know for a fact that you're not doing this for the money. You know, to to that end, um, it, there's, there's something else that's driving you. And so, and I'm sure it's extremely rewarding. And so with that, is there a particular story or a particular event that, that, that just every time you must feel tired and uh, you just mm-hmm. think about and you just think about and that's what keeps you going. There's many. Um, I think what what keeps us going and and there was no plan going into this. Like it, it was very organic how 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 it all started and and how we even run the sessions now. But I think what keeps us going is that the kids that the kids, adults, the, the people of all ages that come here. I mean, it's the one thing that they bank on every every week is is when when they get to come back and to heal with horses. And I think that's what keeps us going when we're tired and stressed out and and you know wondering if there's enough coin to <laughs> to buy the next month's hay <laughs> and things like that. So it's those kids that that blossom and those people that blossom and and really are able to make changes in their lives. So that's what definitely keeps us um, motivated and and inspired and to keep moving forward. When kids come, usually our biggest problem is getting them to go home. <laughs> so Taylor, our manager, and I laugh about that a lot. It, you know, their, their hour is up and it's time to go, and quite often that's the hard part <laughs> is getting them back in the car to go home. Well, you know, I've had the uh, honor and privilege of, of being on your farm, and I can say that it, it's an amazing place to 
shut the cell phone off and to unplug and just spend time with you and your family and all the different animals and, and in particular the horses, uh, but not just the horses, but the sheep and, and the pigs and the goats and the dogs yeah. and the cats and, and everything else. And so, you know, to yeah. that end, if people wanted to uh, reach out to you or reach out or, or to learn more about Heal with Horses in Hillier, Ontario, how, what's the best way for them to learn more about you? I would go to our website. It's uh, very informative, and it's www.healwithhorses.ca. Perfect. Healwithhorses.ca. And and most importantly, too, I think if it's not really obvious, Heal With Horses is a, a not-for-profit, and, and it just the services that you provide for families and individuals doesn't support it all on its own. So if people wanted to help somehow, um, how might they do that? Well, there is a um, a donation link on our website, or you can contact me directly. The email is on the website as well. Excellent. Well, Susie, you're doing something that matters uh, to a lot of people. So we thank you for that, and we wish you the best of luck. And hopefully some folks that listen to this on the podcast will uh, will take uh, some interest and take a keener look and maybe come and pay uh, you a visit at the farm. That would be amazing. Okay, great. Well, thanks for now, and I hope you warm up there. (laughs) Me too. Thanks, Rob. Well, friends, we've come to the end of the first episode of the Drift and Hump podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Susie Latchford, and please check out Heal With Horses. They really are making a difference in this world. I'd also like to thank Rob Knox and Compass Rose, very talented musicians from Northern Ontario who supplied the music for our podcast today. And if you enjoyed the podcast today, please feel free to share it with your friends so we can get the word out that we all need to take some time to drift and hum. Talk to you soon, friends. Thank you.